All right, try it now. All right. The problem was on my end. Don't blame Philip this morning. Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. All right, so we've been talking about the attributes of God, uh, using John Frame's systematic theology as our, our, our launching point for our discussions. And we've talked about his moral attributes, that's his goodness, his love, his mercy, his grace, his righteousness, his hatred, his wrath, his judgment. Uh, those all follow under his moral attributes. Our God's holy. And then we talked about his intellectual attributes. Our God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's the foundation of knowledge and wisdom to us. And now we're talking about his will uh, or his power attributes, if you would. Uh, his omnipotence, his, uh, th those things that follow and under uh, the strength of our Lord. Our God is almighty. Um, and we talked about what that meant and how that, how that is uh, drawn out of the scriptures. Uh, it means that our God can do all things and nothing is impossible with our God. Uh, we talked about what limits that uh, is not a lack of power in God, but because he's powerful, there are limits, uh, limits in what he does do. And what is the limits? Well, he's, uh, he will not do that which is contradictory. He will not contradict himself. He will not deny himself. He will not do, uh, he, he, he will not uh, do that which is immoral because he's holy, he's righteous, uh, and that's his that, that's uh, his strength, not his uh, a lack on his part. And he cannot do he cannot be limited by what limits his creatures, and he cannot limit himself in the way, same way the creatures will be limited. Such as I can build I can build something that I can't lift <laughs> when I'm when it's all said and done, uh, which is pretty easy. Um, well, I mean, it's not easy for me to build, but it's easy, but easy for me to put together something that I could not myself lift. Uh, that's what we think in human terms. So God, however, uh, cannot limit himself in that way. So then we talked about um, last week, we, we got into uh, his relationship how, or how we define his omnipotence and the difficulty we have with that is God literally does do that which is impossible for us. Um, so um, he can literally do anything uh, that is in accord with his nature, which may be the best way for us to talk about 
We talk about his omnipotence. Then we started to get into his omnipotence as is related to salvation, how he throughout salvation history has shown himself to do that which is impossible. Uh, that which is not possible with men, <laughs> i.e. to be saved, is possible with God. Uh, and then we talked about how he displays his power to save through weakness. We talked about the weakness of God, the foolishness of God being greater than men and how the gospel itself uh, is portrayed to us in terms that are offensive as for being weak and being foolish uh, in the eyes of men and how he uh, gets his glory from, from the weak things. Uh, the weak things of our preaching the gospel is a means of saving people. Uh, Paul would say, uh, through, his, through my weakness, he is made strong, uh, things of that nature. So I want to finish up the conversation, and then when I was looking at it, he's got about uh, seven or eight pages of notes to get through in order to finish this conversation. I, I don't want to get into the minutia of some of these discussions that he was having, uh, John Frame, that is, uh, but I do want to touch on some of these points, so possibly we will finish our discussion of the power of God today, because we have one other question to ask. Uh, what is universalism? You all know what universalism is? Everybody will be saved. Even the devil, apparently, will be saved in the end. <laughs> you know, everybody will eventually be saved. Uh, years ago, there was a, a famous preacher um, who I'm just going to go and say is a heretic, uh, uh, Rod Bell wrote the, wrote the book Love Wins, and that basically is the, is the issue where, that he brings forth, which, which he condemns the idea of hell, uh, but, but teaches that there's this idea of hell that acts more like a purgatory to purge the sinner in order for them to be saved, and eventually everyone will be saved and brought into salvation. Uh, the problem, of course, is obvious. That's against what Christ taught. Uh, but there's universalism. So universalism is all will be saved okay, we got that on one side of the line and way over here uh, absolute justice would be no one is saved. All right, so we don't believe either one of those, right? So what makes the, what makes the difference is, is God, unless he's absolutely just and decides to send everyone to hell, which he, should, which he could have done, could have just said... Enough of Adam and Eve and all their descendants. I'm going to bring my justice upon them. Where he decides that he will instead save some. This is all grace. The fact that anyone is saved is grace. Based upon a decision of God to save some. Now, the question comes... It's often asked, could God have saved all? Could he have? 
Okay. Now, obviously, this gets into a problem. He could have. He could have said, I'm choosing to save all. But he didn't. He chose to save some. Now, he had the power to save all, and this is where people will start wrangling with God. What kind of God will not save all, and why or why not? Um, now, I'm not getting into why we don't believe in universalism. I, do, I don't think I need to. Um, uh, Jesus Christ, will just bring that out. Uh, what Jesus Christ said, uh, straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leads unto life, and few there be that find it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. It says, some will awake to everlasting life, some to everlasting damnation. So Christ in Matthew 25 said, said, these shall go away into everlasting life, and these shall go away to everlasting condemnation. There's no way you're going to fit universalism in the straight declarations of the prophets or of Christ. So, one of the questions they have about the power of God is melded with this idea of Him being, uh, with what they say, the, the problem of evil crops up again. God could have. What kind of God doesn't? Now, of course, we're going to get into issues of does man even want God? And is God under obligation to save all? Now, obviously, we can't say that God is under obligation to save all. But that's the question before us, and I want to kind of get into that, and then I want to lead into this idea of the will of God that we just read in the Romans chapter 1. So, so this has been talked about as the way that... The, uh, the way that it's presented in the scriptures is this idea that God has two wills. All right, so what do we mean by two, two wills? Well, first I want to talk to you about it, this in the Arminian sense, but what, really, what, what, what do we mean, by, mean in the scripture? What are the words or, that, we're, that we're presenting in the scripture that deal with that? Uh, the scriptures talk about God's will and the fact that God makes decisions. He decided to save you. He decided to save me. He decided to save, save um, um, all that he gave to Christ to save and all, 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 all that. Uh, and him that comes to him, I shall in no wise cast out. So God is a God that decides, and his will is just that. We don't, we don't think, of, think of God nervously trying to figure out what's going on. God acts God decides, and the words that are used um, is words like uh, pleasure, delight, favor. That's just describing how God chooses. The New Testament word thelma uh, is uh, wish or will. Uh, then it has words like uh, uh, counsel, the counsel of his will, uh, that, that, that God does all that he does based upon his wisdom. Uh, we also ha have these words, 
identified as his pleasure. He does what pleases him. Um, we read there um, in Revelation 4.11, we often sing that song, uh, and for his pleasure we are created. That's this idea of his will, him taking pleasure in that what he, in that what he chooses to do. Um, so his good pleasure, that's a, a, a another term that arises there in Ephesians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2, um, that God, the, also this vocabulary comes up that he's thinking, he's planning, he's choosing, and there is a way of God in that he chooses uh, certain things. His will and his way are often interchangeable. And then you have ideas like he gives commands, laws, statutes, commandments, words. Um, and these all express what we would call generally the will of God. So the Armenians and Catholics and others have taught, were the first really to kind of concretely talk about this idea that there are two wills. God has two wills. And they would talk about it in the sense of God having a, uh, an antecedent will. What God would really please God is for all to be saved. And then there's a consequent will. And this is this idea that based upon the consequence of how thing, a circumstance is played out, God was pleased to save some. Now, we have the same problem that we raise, arose, that arose in our discussion of God's omniscience. What is this based upon? Well, God's will is now based upon man's will. Man's will dictates ultimately what, if what God pleases is pleased to do, and it becomes his consequent will. All right, so we're not, we're not getting, I know the Bible says, whosoever will uh, may come and drink of the water of life freely. We're not, I'm not saying, uh, and I don't think anyone would say that, that our salvation is not, is, does not involve us making decisions uh, to choose Christ. But what we're saying is, is what is God's will? God is, God's will is involved in the saving of some. So the, the Reformed folks come along, and obviously a idea that God has two wills, an antecedent will, what he really, really, really wish would happen, and then his consequent will, what does happen based upon what men do, is, was a problem for the more Calvinistic thinker. So they began to discuss God having two wills in a different way. Now, I want to express an, an issue I'm going to take with Calvinism here. And I think uh, John Frame is right here. Can we theologically say that God desires the salvation of those that are lost? Yeah. We th I can scripturally, and we're going to get into that in a second, but we, we can say that. So I'm going to just take an issue with, 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 with some of the more hyper-Calvinistic ideas here. But the, instead of talking about the Arminian view is uh, we have the antecedent will, 
and then the consequent will. They, they, on the other hand, speak of the two wills instead as the, the creative and, oh my, it slipped my mind. You have the decreative and the perceptive will. Now, these are big words, I know. We can get the word decree out of this first word. And that goes along with what, with what we were arguing about his omniscience. Uh, God has ordained all that comes to pass. He's working all things for his glory. He's working all things for the good of them that, of them that uh, um, those that love him. He has made decrees. Those decrees are what God has ordained to be. Now, that's his decreative will. Now, we know very little of his decreative will, but we do know a lot about it because he has told us about what he has decreed in the scriptures. And then we have the perceptive will. Now, with the decreative will, and really, other than the insertion of everything being based upon human will, there's really little difference between the Arminian and Calvinist ideas here. Now, what the, what the Calvinist says is the decree, whatever God decrees will come to pass, but whatever God, we, hear, we see the word precept in this, perceptive, precept, what is a precept? I love your precepts, O Lord. They are my delight. A precept is a imperative, a command, right? All right, so... All right, y'all, just making sure you're with me. And that will of God, what God desires is expressed in His commands. What are some of His commands? Repent. Uh, believe. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. Don't have any other gods before you. And these all express God's will. Right? God does not want me to kill. God does not want me to steal. God does want me to repent. So his precepts describe what he takes pleasure in and what he wills for us to do. Now the question is, is do we always do it? So we don't. So, the, unlike the decreative will, which must come to pass, because God has said it will be, uh, such as prophecy, things of that nature, um, Jesus Christ was going to be crucified, uh, he was going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, or so on and so forth. Uh, his decrees will come to pass, but his precepts might not. And some of the wranglings that some of the hyper-Calvinists take is that is that God must not have willed those that repent the, 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 the command to repent must not have been a genuine command, a genuine precept to those who rejected it. Now that's where that, there of course is where we run into a problem. We talked about God does indeed love the sinner. God loves the unrighteous. God blesses the unrighteous. He does good to the unrighteousness. 
to the unrighteous in this world, the wicked of this world, or those that despise him. The idea that God's command to have no other gods was only meant for those that he elected is foolish. That his command to not engage in, a, in, in adultery or to not kill or steal is only meant for the people of God and is not something that is binding and a true imperative giving to those that do steal and do kill and do commit adultery is ludicrous. And so it is with the scriptures, to, with, the, with the gospel commands to repent and believe. Where did Jesus Christ tell us to, to preach the gospel at? What? Matthew 28, but, but where? I mean, where locally? <laughs> where are we supposed to preach the gospel? To whom? Who? Oh, right. <laughs> Every creature in Mark. Uh, or um, repentance and remission of spin, uh, sins is to be preached in all nations, starting at Jerusalem. He used to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth preaching repentance and faith. And that's the responsibility of man, every person, to hear his imperative. Now, obviously, he doesn't, or not everyone does. But that's, so the perceptive will is something that can and often is. It is a desire of the will. It is a will of God for, you can't, no one can say, well, it's, God, it's not God's will for those idolaters to, <laughs> to quit their idolatry. It is very much so his will that no one engages in idolatry. Now, what about... Let's go to Ezekiel 18. Now, I am, I am getting on to... Now, I have definite problems with the Arminian view of God having two wills in the sense that it, His will is thwarted and everything is... But His, his good pleasure is waiting for man to decide what he wants first. Um, and I don't think that that's biblical, but I also don't think it's biblical for us to say that God does not desire the salvation of the lost. And I think that's clear here in Ezekiel 18. God does desire. Why do you share the gospel with the people you meet? You didn't take your gospel to the wrong address, like the missionary said. You, you, you gave the gospel to someone that God was speaking to. And there was... A command. That's not God handing, please be saved, please. No, God's commanding, just like He commanded you to repent and you to believe, He's commanding them to repent and them to believe. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 23. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord, and not that he should return from his ways and live? God says it right here. Does God desire the salvation of the wicked? Turn to Second, second Peter. This, this is a more familiar uh, scripture. Second Peter chapter 3, and verse 9. 
2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning this prop promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Now, I have looked at this verse in various ways. The Calvinist, the Calvinistic mind, or at least the hyper-Calvinistic mind that says, no, God doesn't desire the salvation of the lost. That's how, I'm just going to call that hyper-Calvinism. Uh, there's no need for me to take the gospel out because God's going to save those he's going to save. Or, you know, I mean, all, all, all that silliness that comes with hyper-Calvinism. They would say that the any is the us word here. God is long, but, but, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any of the usward should perish, but that all of the usward should come to repentance. I don't think that's a good way to look at this text because there is no reason to consider that any and all are, direct are, the, are the direct antecedents of the usward there. What we have in a general reading here is the same thing we have in Ezekiel 18. God desires the salvation of the lost. Okay? And I'm, I'm speaking that as someone who is far more Calvinistic than I was once. I think that they are exegeting that text wrong. So let's look at one more. 1 Timothy chapter 1. No, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I think both, there is in either way, and I have a reason to reject this because God's good pleasures are not based upon what man might do. But obviously we could take this too far as well. But there is a good thing for us to see that there is complexity in the will of God. Uh, it's not, you and I are not going to fully understand God's will in the sense of what happens. But we can see this division, and we can see that even though the Scriptures do not implicitly say, well, there's a decreative will of God and a perceptive will of God. There's that's what He said will happen, and there is that which He has commanded, which may or may not happen among men. And we can see a complexity, that God, but God has expressed His desires, and His desires are for the gospel to go forward to all. And that, that is... A, that is a wonderful thing. First Timothy chapter 2, it says, I exhort, or exhort therefore, the, fir the first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now, do we delineate that? Do we say, well, he doesn't mean all men here. No, there, there's no reason for us to delineate that. There, there's no antecedent here to limit that in any way. Now, all does not always mean all, so it may be limited by something in the text. But here, when it says we pray for all men, there is no antecedent that limits it. All here in verse 1 means all, that we pray for all men. Are you doing that? Now, I'm not saying you get a phone book at, which I don't, does their phone book still exist? No? There's, 
I don't know if phone books even still exist. But that doesn't mean you get a phone book and say, I pray for John Adams and Jerry Adams and Tom Adams and and then Mr. Atkins and, and Mrs. Atkins and this Atkins III. <laughs> and you're going down praying for every single... No, who, what does it mean? It means that we pray for all those that we encounter. All right? There's no limit to it. There's no, well, I'm not going to pray for that person. And I'm not going to give the gospel to that person. I'm not going to seek the good of that person at all. That's, that's not, we, we can all agree that that's not biblical. So there's no antecedent that limits all here in verse 1. We all agree with that, right? Hopefully you all agree. Now, we can limit all sometimes in some texts if there is something in the text that limits it and says, by all we mean all of Israel or all of, uh, all of the tribe of Benjamin or all of uh, something like that. You, you, if there's something in the text to limit it, you can. Yes, sir. Amen. And there's nothing that limits it. There's nothing in that text that limits it. All cleanses me from all of my unright, well, at least all the unrighteousness that I committed on April 6th or something like that. You know, he said all, right? There's nothing that limits it. Here, there's nothing that limits it. And then he goes on. He says, for very specific people, for kings, verse 2, and for all that are in authority. Well, I'm not going to pray for our governor, but I might pray for our secretary of state. <laughs> <laughs> all that are in authority, um, that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved. Is there any antecedent that limits that? Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that... Now, the universalists will take the Scripture and say, see, everybody's going to be saved. No, but we're expressing something about the desire of God here for people to be saved. Now, my Calvinist friends will say that means all kinds of people will be saved. And I'm not going to wrangle with that too much. But I see no reason to not come here to this very text and say God desires that that person that is in front of me needs to hear the gospel. And that person may or may not actually be saved. But they needed to hear the command to repent and believe. They needed to, be, to have a real will of God pressed upon them. God said, you must repent. God said, you must believe. It may or may not happen, but they need it. And that is the expressed will of God. That precept must be taken to them too. So, we know that um, these texts, and there's many others, that talk about repentance, the precepts of repentance and faith that are connected with the gospel are, are taught in many different places, even to those who may or may not receive it. So, God, so does God does desire the salvation of everyone? Yes, God does. Will God save everyone? See, that's where, there's, where the complexity of His will comes in. Now, 
We can say that he's been gracious to all, good to all, loving to all. The imperative has gone to all. And that his will, though, is rejected by some. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will, the good pleasure, the desire of the Father. So there's some that that will was preached, and they didn't take it. And what did they say? Depart from me. So not all is going to be saved. Not all will submit to his will as it is expressed. And the issue is, is why it's very easy for us to talk about this idea that God has two wills. There is no differentiation in the scriptures. You and I, it helps us to talk about it in these ways, but there is no real differentiation between these. I'm going to try to hurry. There is even times where God expresses a desire, a passionate desire for the disobedient to obey and they don't obey. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29, for instance, he says, Oh, that they had such a mind that they would be after me and they would keep my commandments that it might go well with them. But they didn't. God had a desire for a disobedient Israel not to be disobedient, but they continued in their disobedience. Consider the words of Christ. Did he not have a desire for Jerusalem in the days of his where he cried, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I, you that stoned the prophets, how often would I have gathered you under my wings as a hen does a chick? But you wouldn't. God had a desire after him. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. And this is almost the same thing that Peter is talking about where, he's to, where, where we just read there. Uh, uh, his long suffering, not willing that any should perish. There, 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 is, there is a desire on God for people to turn, for people to hear his command and obey it. One thing's for sure, obviously, if you do study the scriptures, if there's anybody that's saved, it's because God saved them, <laughs> and God chose to save them. Is there anybody that's lost? It's not because God did not extend to them salvation. Amen? Now, we, uh, we have difficulties kind of putting that collectively in some... In, 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 uh, in uh, a doctrinal statement, but that is the way the Scriptures speak. Now, which is the real will of God? Now, I'm setting aside the antecedent and consequent ideas of the Arminians, because the will of man is not supreme. All right, but let's, let's, I think these are good, I, the good ways for us to look at the will of God. Percep, the, the creative and perceptive wills. So which one's the real will? 
Um, well, both. I don't think you and I can parse this out and say, well, that's not really the will of God there. Um, so what, what do we mean? But, if, but this might not come to pass, someone might say. The, perceptive, the percepts of, precepts of God may not be obeyed. That, but wait, it will. You know, one day there is going to be, well, there, there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. There is, there, there is going to be perfect repentance and perfect faith one day. And it's being worked out here in, the, here in this historical drama. There is going to be a place where every one of His commands are kept perfectly, where there will be no killing, stealing, or covetousness, where there will be no idolatry. What, what, what do the precepts of God tell us? God has a goal. He has a goal for all of us. He has a goal not just for me to repent here and now, but bring me into a place of perfect righteousness. And just like we talked about with uh, prophecy, about that being a, a, uh, a moral system, so, so our understanding of God's precepts is a moral system that shows us what God really wants to be the totality of our lives and would have be the totality of the lives even of those that reject it and go their way and will one day here depart. I, I, I do want to finish this, um, and, and I, I'm not going to take just too much time, but he also has a small section here as he finishes talking about the power of God, which involves the will of God, uh, about is there a third will. Um, and this is this idea that is there, a plan, God, is there a plan that God has for me in my life? And if so, how do we do that? How do we understand that? And I don't know if I can get this done in one minute or not, so I might just have to wait until next week. But next week, we'll start by talking about, is there a third will of God? And that gets into Romans chapter 12, uh, that we may know what is the perfect and acceptable uh, will of God. How do I know what God wants me to do? Because His will, His power is what I should be submitting to. How, does God want me to uh, 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 marry... Uh, a bachelor A or bachelor B? Does God want me to move to town A or town B? Uh, does God want me to major in arts or uh, biology? Or does He want me to go to work in a factory? Uh, those are, how do we understand what the will of the Lord is? And I think that would be a good place for us to just take about 10 minutes uh, first thing next week to talk about. Uh, just as far as the difference, the two wills of God, um, is there any questions about about this or complaints or grievances? Well, you should have prayed for him. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs>
But I can, I can say this, God would have you to pray for all men. Maybe not with the phone book. He would have you pray for him too if he's still alive. <laughs> if, if he, you encounter him and have specific reason to pray for him. <laughs> All right, anything else? All right, well, hopefully that was clear as mud talking about the two wills of God. All right, we've got about 10 minutes.